Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. How could the angels not just explode with celebration? Glory to the newborn king. I like that song. You should like it too. All right, let's go John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles uh, scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to actually take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that, it's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his, his word, the scriptures, the Bible uh, for his purposes. He uses it to, to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. He uses us to teach us how to live. But mo- more importantly than all of those things is that he uses the Bible to teach us about himself. He reveals himself to us through the scriptures, right? You can know God a little bit. You can know things about God through, through uh, the, the works of nature. We call that common graces, uh, 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 common revelation. Uh, you can look at a sunset and see that God's a pretty thing. Right? You can look at the power of a waterfall or the waves against the ocean and learn that God is powerful. But if you want to know him, you chase after knowing him in the, in the Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're at a disadvantage when it comes to knowing God. And we want you to know God. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one, start reading it, and that's a win for everybody involved. All right? So, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Um, there are things that I absolutely love about this time of year. And every word of that sentence was important. There are things that I absolutely love about this time of year. Like, we could call it Christmas, but it's kind of also more than that. Like I'm talking specifically about that, that five to six weeks between Thanksgiving and New Year's. It's just something wholly special, right? It's different than the rest of the year. Like, other seasons have, their, have their, their perks. Like, springtime is awesome because, especially in New England, like, like, by the time you start seeing green, that's a good thing, right? And summer is amazing because God invented baseball, right? <laughs> the good giver of all good gifts, right? He's the source of creativity. That was his idea, right? And so God is good to us that he gave us baseball. And fall in New England is amazing, right? Like, I don't, for those of you who grew up here, like, you're, you may be lost, this may be lost on you, but for those of us who grew up in a place where the trees don't change colors, like, my brain goes into overload each year, like, trying to process all the information. Can anybody else relate to that? Yeah. Like, I grew up where there were pine trees, guys. They just stay green all the time. Fall is amazing. Spring is awesome. Summer is special for all kinds of reasons, but there is just something incredibly unique about this thing that we call the Christmas season or the holidays as some like to call it. I mean, there's there's this special time where you're trying your best to gather together with other people. Like, there's lots of food. How many of y'all ate well this last week? If you didn't, you're doing it wrong. There's lots of food, there's giving and receiving, there's lots of special time with special people. Aren't we all trying to cram as many meetings and parties and and get-togethers as possible into the calendar? Like, that's everybody's reality right now. We're trying our absolute best to squeeze it all in. For goodness sakes, there's an entire genre of movies and music dedicated to this part of the year, right? Like, like Hallmark's not making 25 made-for-TV movies about Columbus Day, 
No radio station, station is switching format for the month of July. There's something special about this time of the year. And count me as one of the card-carrying members of the herd who absolutely loves it. Right? Anybody else? But I also feel like this is a place where we're going to be honest, right? I mean, aren't there things about this season that aren't so great? Aren't there things about this season that just aren't so spectacular and actually seem to drain life out of you instead of put it in? Even amongst the good things that we just listed off, right? Like we can talk about the cultural consumerism, blah, 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 blah. Those are things that we can talk about, but like, like we're three days removed from Thanksgiving. Like some of you may have plans today to try to meet with somebody that you couldn't meet with over the last couple of days, right? We're three days removed from, Hall- uh, from Thanksgiving. But how many of you are already looking at the calendar and you're starting to get a little frustrated because you're not sure how you're going to fit everything in? Anybody else? How many of you are already beginning to feel the pressure of that rising level of giving and receiving that seems to ramp up and up and up each year? Think there's an end to that somewhere? Or maybe we all just crash. How many of you are already getting the getting the picture that by the time you come out of the other side of the tunnel in January that you're going to be exhausted? Or am I the only one who thinks that way? See, there are plenty of things about this season to love, and and make no mistake, we should celebrate those things. We should love those things. I mean, it takes a pretty hard heart to, to be completely unmoved by those things. But if we're honest, like how many of us secretly hate this season? Because by the time you come out the other side of it, you don't know up from down. You'd never say that out loud, but for many of you, you wonder if it's worth the effort. Could it be? Could it be that the the frustration and the exhaustion and the constantly unmet expectations have more to do with the way we approach this season than with the season itself? I'll say that again because that's important. Could it be that the frustration and the exhaustion and the constantly unmet expectations have more to do with the way we approach this season than with the actual season of Christmas? That's why I want to look at John 17 this morning. Not because it's a Christmas text. In fact, it's nothing at all like a Christmas text. It's more closely associated with Easter. It's the final hours of Jesus' life before he's arrested. It's happening in the upper room. So it's not a Christmas text at all. But I want to look at something this morning that, uh, that I think will give us some lenses into how to approach this, this incredibly beautiful, but I think also potentially dangerous part of the year. Sound like a plan? I'm the guy with the face mic. That's what we're doing. So I don't know what your church background is, but in case you don't have one or much of one, let me set the stage for you. Uh, The Gospel of John, or the Book of John as some call it, is kind of different than the other three gospel accounts. The other three gospel accounts are very, very, very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John's kind of out in his own little world. But all four of the gospel writers have their own style and have their own flair and they have their own agendas in retelling the story of Jesus. They're all true. They're all saying the same thing, but they're all approaching it in different ways for different audiences, for different purposes. All right? 
And so John's gospel is just kind of weird. It comes out of left field. But what's special about John's is that half of his gospel account is dedicated to the last 15 or 16 hours of Jesus' life. John has 24 chapters, and so the back half of that gospel account is nothing but like Lord's Supper on. And so John gives us way, I almost said super way, way more detail than any of the other three gospel writers about the events that led up to the time of Jesus' arrest, what happened during his arrest, the death narrative, the resurrection narrative, and on. All right. John gives us way more detail about that. And so starting in chapter 13, he goes on to not only describe the meal, the Passover meal, uh, but it's John's account where we learn about the foot washing. Like That's a story that many of you all love dearly, right? John's the one that tells us about that. The other three guys don't. We learn about the foot washing. We learn about the meal in more detail. Uh, John gives us a couple of extended conversations between Jesus and the disciples that the other guys don't give us. And in chapter 17... Chapter 17, we're still in the upper room. We learn, uh, we, we're told about this thing that John calls the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. To be a priest is to be a mediator. To stand in the gap between God and man. And so the high priestly prayer of Jesus is Jesus praying on behalf of other people. He's praying for others, which sounds innocuous on its face, but remember that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen to him, right? Right? Like, how many of you are praying for others in that moment? You're praying for yourself, right? Jesus instead, though, prays for others in the high priestly prayer. He starts out in the first five verses of chapter 17. We're not going to read them. But he, he starts out by praying that the Father would be glorified through everything that's about to take place. That somehow God's going to make his name more magnified through the dark, dark day that's coming. All right, And so that's the, the first five verses. But then Jesus moves on to praying for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. And verses 6 through 19 are some of the richest things that Jesus said in his three-year earthly ministry. Like, it's this incredibly special part of the Bible. And I know that's a bold statement to say that it's more special than other things he said because, you know, you got the Sermon on the Mount and you got all these other things. But there's some massive stuff going on in the high priestly prayer. It's this simultaneous picture of Jesus' concern for those who have been following him, but at the same time, like in the same moment, revealing absolutely massive, eternity-shaking truths about the nature of the Trinity. So if you've got questions about what that means, here's a good place to look. These, this interwoven relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, you see pieces of that flesh itself out through these few verses where Jesus is just praying for other people. Let me show you what I mean. In verses 6 through 8, let's look at that real quick. Jesus says this, he's talking to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I went ahead and read through verse 9, but that's okay. 
So Jesus' overarching concern in this prayer, in this little section of prayer, is that, that the people who watched him for the last three years and lived with him and walked with him and talked with him and saw him do miracles and saw him engage in ministry and saw him put the Pharisees in his place, that, that Jesus' concern is that the people who watched him do this for the last three years would trust what they saw and believe what they heard. That's his overarching aim. But you might have noticed some, several massive realities just kind of built into what he said. One, like for starters, Jesus assumes, Jesus assumes that all the people following him were given to him by the Father. In other words, Jesus isn't entrepreneuring this thing. He's not building something out of nothing. He's not hustling this. He's stewarding this. He is rightly handling what's been handed to him. That's a massive reality. He's faithfully stewarding what's been handed to him by the Father. Second thing that we see out of that, that's birthed out of that first reality, is that Jesus did and said only and exactly what God the Father told him to do and to say. How does that work? Jesus only did and said exactly what the Father told him to do and to say, which means that there's deference, not difference, deference within the Trinity somehow. That the eternal Son of God, not because he's less valuable or less powerful or less glorified, but the eternal Son of God is somehow eternally submissive to the Father. Wrap your head around that one. third thing that we see in just these couple of verses is that Jesus assumes that just asking the Father for these things, asking the Father to protect and asking the Father to bring fruit to his work is not only going to be heard, but answered. Jesus assumes here that just asking for it, he's going to get it. We're just scratching the surface on Trinitarian theology here. But it's just kind of this stuff that's built into this moment where Jesus is praying for other people. Which raises the awkward question for us, right? Like, how's our theology sound when we pray? Are we praying true and eternally true things about God? Don't mean to mess with your head on that one, but have fun. So like I said a moment ago, Jesus' prayer here is some of the richest stuff that Jesus spoke in the Gospels. It's full of life, full of truth that informs us about who he is and the work that he came to do and all these kinds of things. Uh, But then there's this little shift that happens. Like I said, in the first five verses, he's praying that the Father would be glorified. And then 6 through 19, he's praying for the disciples specifically. But then a shift happens in verse 20. Look at that with me. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their what? Through their words. So who's he praying for now? You. He's praying for those who will believe in him, trust him based on what the disciples reported about him. So if if you love Jesus because you read his gospels, that means you. He's praying for You, he's praying for me here, right? So we ought to probably perk up and pay attention to what he says next. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. My voice just cracked. That they may be one. 
I lost my place. There you go. 21. That they may be all that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. I, and these know, and these I am having a hard time reading today. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Excuse me. Okay, so the first thing that Jesus prays for you and I, for all those who will follow him because of the report of the disciples, is that we would be what he calls united as one. That's what Jesus wants for us, to be united as one. But don't think some lovey-dovey kumbaya kind of thing. Think way deeper than that. See, we live in a culture that, that tends to paint unity as this kind of whitewash thing where we just overlook our differences. But that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. He's talking about being bonded together by something that supersedes all of our differences. That goes beyond all of our differences and overwhelms our differences. And so what bond is that? It's an eternally deep position change. An eternally deep position change is those who have been redeemed and reconciled and rescued from our sin by God. That's what unites us. We're not united by a common location or a profession. We're certainly not united by a political philosophy or a sports fandom, right? Go Cowboys. The tie that unites our faith family together is outside of us and gifted to us. That's what makes it special. It's not by anything that we've earned or accumulated for ourselves, but through the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf to make payment for our sin. It goes well beyond whether or not you're a Patriots fan. It's eternity shaking and eternity shaping. And because this thing is something that's 100% outside of us, well, that means that there are a thousand distinctions amongst us even as we are declared one family. And it's okay to have all those thousand distinctions. Like that tree over there. That's an awkward tree. There's a cactus on there. There's a unicorn on the back. See nutcrackers and a Ghanaian doll and a cowbell and a pink llama at the top. Just like that tree over there, we're this weird, eclectic group. We bring all these different styles and stories and backgrounds to the table. And every one of us are brought together by his grace into his family and into his kingdom for his glory. Now, why do I say for his glory? Because there are there's this little two-word phrase that I hope you picked up on in verses 21 and 23. Did you catch what it was? Those of you who have been here a while know what it is already, right? It's the phrase, so that. 
It's a conditional thing in the middle of the sentence that creates the means to a greater end. All right? That's what a so that is there for. So look at verse 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, comma, so that. So we're building to a greater end here, right? This, this unity is serving a greater purpose. So that. What does it say? The world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, that, you, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you, what? Sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the end goal of our oneness here is not, does not, like, it doesn't cease on us. It goes outside of us to something bigger. What's that bigger thing? That God would be glorified. So the purpose of this weird, eclectic, but unified family of believers is to show off God's glory. That's the reason why he does it. It's a God-given testimony to the world of the great things that God has done. Or we can say it another way. His goodness is magnified by our awkwardness. You want a tweetable thing? God's goodness is magnified by our awkwardness. He is seen as more and more and more glorious. And this is why our awkward Christmas tree is on the stage instead of out in the foyer. Because we want to show it off. We're making this guy the star of the show for the next month. Because it represents something bigger than us. That's why when you invite a friend to come with you over the next couple of weeks, they're going to come in here and they're going to see, wow, y'all's tree is special. (laughs) You know what your response needs to be in that moment? I know, ain't it great? Let me tell you about it. God's goodness is magnified by our awkwardness. It shows off his glory that he would unite such a weird group as us into this room. Ain't it great? That's not all Jesus prays for. He prays for us to be one, but that's not it. Look back at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be what? With me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus asks the Father to let us see his glory. Anybody prepared for that? Think you can handle that? Jesus wants us to know and be known by him deeply. Jesus wants us to see his face and to find our rest in him and him alone. You may be thinking to yourself, well, that's nice and all, but that's kind of like an all the time thing, right? Like, why would we focus on that for Advent stuff? Like, what does that have to do with this weird five to six weeks called the Christmas season? I know it's a dumb question, but if your heart is anything at all like my heart, you're prone to often overlooking the dumb thing. Maybe I'm alone in that. I know it's a dumb question, but I'll ask the question. Do you really think that Jesus would have you set on the shelf the thing he wants for you all the time for five or six weeks at the end of the year? 
especially in a season that we celebrate specifically about his coming? Like, you think Jesus would want you to focus on something else for a little while? I get it. It's, it's a dumb question, but I'm guilty over and over and over and over again of forgetting the dumb, simple things in the midst of the busy holiday. Am I alone in that? Like, squeezing everything into the calendar can be a good thing. That's neither wrong nor sinful. It's, it's, it's not sinful to have a busy schedule. And, and actually, busyness and being united as one often serve each other because what are we trying to do in those moments, right? Those aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive things. They're not always at odds at each other. But as things begin to ramp up and up and up, as they always tend to do this part of the year, and as you begin to feel more and more and more overwhelmed, and as you begin to doubt that you can make it all work, you're going to find yourself in a place eventually where you're going to have to choose. And so the question it needs to be asked, which one are you going to choose? What's more important to you in that moment? Squeezing everything in or pressing deeper with a select few? Finding the perfect gift so that the one that you love will feel loved. Man, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But we also live in a world that's broken by sin and your hearts are broken by sin. And a textbook definition of idolatry is when you take good things and turn them into ultimate things. so it's also possible, 100% possible, that as the cultural trappings of Christmas ramp up more and more and more, that we can find our satisfaction in being the good gift giver instead of adoring the good gift giver. And so when that happens, what are you going to choose? Which one is more important to you? See, I think the two things that Jesus wants for us all the time are actually the very two things that are necessary in seasons like we're walking into right now. That's why we can preach the high priestly prayer as an Advent text. I think it may be more necessary today than it was in June. I think we need this. As we wade into the next five or six weeks, guys, we need this. I think Jesus wants us to unite ourselves together and to pursue him deeply. During the Christmas season, as much as any other time of the year. So every once in a while, I want to be the practical pastor. I don't do a great job of that most of the time, but I can give it a swing this week. I want to give you four things that I think can help us get there. Help us pursue these two things well. You ready for it? Four things that will help us aim better at unity and depth that Jesus wants for us this Christmas season. So if you're a note taker, here's your your note taken. Number one, slow down. Slow down. You don't have to do everything. And this season will fry you if you allow it to. Some handle this better than others. Everybody's capacity for this is different. Everybody's frame is different. But listen, in a world that's always saying more, 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 it is downright otherworldly to say no thanks every once in a while. I can sweeten the deal a little bit. Like we're always pushing people around here to, to find ways to transition the conversation to the gospel. 
Take your foot off the gas for half a second this season and watch the befuddled look on people's faces. We do it. This is what we do. I'm good. What a glorious time to point them to the Jesus who offers them rest. Slow down. Secondly, embrace the angst. Angst is a weird word. What do I mean by that? You're going to hear all kinds of promises over the next several weeks that have zero hope of being fulfilled this side of heaven. And yet, that's what we do. Promises about the family finally coming together without fighting. You know it's a pipe dream, right? But you're going to hear it over a cup of Folgers coffee or something. It'll be great. Promises about that new gadget making you feel whole and solving all your problems at work. Conveniently on sale right before the holiday rush, I might add. You're going to hear all kinds of promises this, this season. And very, very, very few of those promises have any hope of being fulfilled. Have you noticed that we live in a world that's constantly over-promising and under-delivering? Man, I have. I always get frustrated by it. And we could either keep getting frustrated by it, but it might be healthier to just finally realize that we're always putting our hope in the wrong thing. Right? The Bible seems to paint the picture that it's better to live in the tension between the already and not yet. That all of our greatest hopes and dreams have been promised to us, but they haven't been brought to fruition yet. They haven't been delivered yet. That day of glory is yet to come. And so embrace the angst. Slow down, embrace the angst. Number three, press in. Press in. Look for opportunities to press into God and press into the, the church that God has placed you in, whether that's here or somewhere else. Listen, if you're visiting here today, we're glad you're here. Go press into your home church. Wherever God has called you to, press in there. How do you do that? Well, we're attempting to provide one way for you through our Advent devotional. Read that thing on your own. That's valuable. But listen, what's more valuable? Find a way to read that within the context of community. Press in that way. It'll be most valuably done, whether it's read in your family or your small group or your small group of friends, whatever that looks like for you. Use that. Does that mean that the Advent devotional is the only way that, that we can approach that? Not even close. Open up your Bible with some other folks and press in that way. Jump into the deep end. It's more fun that way, I think. God wants you to see his glory. God wants you to draw near to him and to be satisfied by him and find your rest in him. So he has given us these really simple, incredibly simple tools to do exactly that. We get in our own heads about this. We're the ones who make this overcomplicated. He's given us the scriptures so that we may know him. Jump in and press in. Take the opportunity that he's given you in this special part of the year and do that. But there's a fourth thing that we need to talk about this morning, and it's specifically for those of you who feel out of place by the first three. So slow down, embrace the angst, press in. But the fourth one is trust Jesus alone. 
Trust Jesus alone, regardless of what the world around us turns it into. The, the entire season, the reason for the season, we could say it that way, is because God put on flesh and dwelt among us. We, can, we may add all these other cultural things to it, and those things may be fun, and those things may be incredibly frustrating, but the reason why we're celebrating right now is because God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And so strip all the cultural things away for a moment and deal with that. He saw our sin and our feeble frame, and he came to fix the problem. The Christmas story begins when he took on the form of a servant. But that servant came for a very specific reason. He didn't just come to hang out. No, he came to die. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so it's through his life laid down for you and for me on that cross that he paid the debt that we owe because of our sin. I love Christmas, but listen, we celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. I adore Christmas, but it's small potatoes to the reason he came. It had to start somewhere. We'll have a good time with that. Oh, but it's building to something far, far better. We celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. And so if you're here today and you don't know the Jesus I'm talking about, then with love and a pastoral heart for you, I want to look you in the eye and tell you that your best hope for this season is to just keep treading water, man. Have fun with that. Put on another Hallmark movie, squeeze in one more Christmas party, and hope you come out of the other side unscathed. Unless rescue is offered. And I'm here to tell you that rescue is offered. Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus wants you to, to know him. He wants to give you himself. He promises to do exactly that for all those who call upon his name. And so for those who trust him and him alone as Savior and Lord, they are reconciled to him by him. Slow down. Embrace the angst. Press in. If you don't know him yet, that's the first step. Come to know him. Come to know him. Trust him and him alone. So how do we respond to God's word this, this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, right? We, we say this every single week. And, and listen, you press in through the means he's seen fit to give us. The Bible and his church, the community of believers he's placed you in. But listen, maybe today's a good day to repent of some things for you. Maybe, maybe you struggle with the season more than most in some specific ways. I don't know what that looks like. Today's a good day to repent of that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that will serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. He died so that you may have life. Born that man no more may die. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want to talk about what that looks like, you come find me down here. Let's pray. And let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your, 
your high priestly prayer. A moment dedicated to praying for others, even in the midst of the heartache and the sorrow you were walking into. God, I know it's an all-the-time thing. My heart is prone to, to put away all-the-time all things for the sake of the now. So draw my attention back to you and what you would have for me. God, help me see where I failed to press into you and the community you've given me. God, I want you. All the things that come with this Christmas season, man, most of them are really fun. But if I have all the fun things and I miss you, I I have wasted six weeks. Guard me from that. Put people in my life that will help me parse through that and see the disconnect. God, as we celebrate your coming, would you help us see why that changes everything? You are good to us. In your name we pray.